Dave. Hello, man. What's going on? <laughs> Just taking a sip of your, what you're drinking? Tea? Beer? Coffee? Black coffee. The most alpha version of coffee. <laughs> uh, zero sugar. <laughs> And have you just done lifting weights for two hours before we started this and then meditated for four hours? <laughs> yeah, man. I, uh, it's, it's two o'clock here, so it's been six hours. So I'm down with my, well, I'm done with my morning routine. I can, I can get started now. Oh, so you've been up since 2 a.m. or something this morning then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, my, uh, my, root, my, my morning routine's not as, um, not as hardcore as it used to be. Yeah, I felt I felt I felt on that rabbit hole like everyone else when I started actively, you know, with self improvement. I I, it, I I did the same. I I did. Have you read um, oh, the book by Gay Hendricks, the the morning the morning miracle or the miracle morning or something? Not even, I've never even heard of it. It's, what what's what's that? It's a book pretty much about morning routines, and. When, when I was first getting into self-development, probably about four or five years ago, I read that and I was like, oh my God, I need to change everything. I need to get up at 4, 4.30 a.m. And I started getting up at 4.30 a.m. And then, and then I, I, need to, I need to journal every morning and I started doing that. And then I, I was like, I need to, you know, I, I need to do a workout every morning. And then it's slowly and slowly I've realized a lot of that was ridiculous. Yeah, but I think to be optimistic, the long-term effects of having gone through that period for a month or two is worth it. Like just the idea now that you can wake up an hour early and meditate or, you know, whatever, work out for a bit. Uh, you know, even if it's just for like 30 minutes to an hour, you're still way better off than, than people who, who basically, when I worked in corporate, right, my entire life was just a reaction. So you wake up, you don't have a plan, client phone call, you're in a state of chaos. And next thing you know, your boss is calling you. Next thing you know, your manager's calling you. You're, you're, like, you're, ne- you're not doing anything with intention. You're just reacting to everyone else throughout the entire day. And you're just basically in a state of survival from the time you wake up to the time you fall asleep. Whereas, you know, as much as we make fun of the morning routines, it kind of gets your mind in a state of, okay, I need to live my life proactively. Even if it means just getting one thing done and that's it. You're still way ahead. I, I completely agree with you. I am not shitting on it at all. It just got, and I, and I think everybody ridiculous. Goes, yeah. I think everybody goes through this process. When I first started to look into started reading a lot of self-improvement books and I finally made the decision I'm going to change things and you get obsessed with it and it became a point where in my life I don't know if, if you found the same where I was almost obsessing over all of the routines and all the, the meditation and reading the books and I was obsessing over all of the theory behind the things which yes. became a bit too much yeah, it gets to a point where, how do I explain it? I remember when I was traveling, right? When I was younger, I did like a big backpacking trip around the world for like, yeah, for literally for about 12 months. And back then you would meet a lot of travelers and I used to call them checklist travelers. 
where they would meet another traveler and they would immediately go, what countries have you been to? Well, I've been to this, this, this. And it became like a game of, oh, well, I've been to that this many countries and you've been to that many countries. And I've seen, I speak this many languages. And it's like, you're, you're missing the entire point. The point is not to see as many countries in as little as time as possible. The point is to expand your mind and, and you know, get out of your bubble. Um, and I think it's a similar psychology with the morning routines where the entire point of the morning routine is that it gets you in a state of mind to live your life actively. It's not about trying to be as perfect and as hardcore as possible. Mm. I remember there was one point when I was doing it where I literally had a checklist of like 10, you know, five, 10 things Me too. Me and too. I would cross it off because I couldn't remember them. And then I was like, well, what the fuck's the point of like having a checklist? Um, you know, this, th- I should be able to do this effortlessly and I sh- it should help energize me, not stress me out about, oh, fuck, I missed this. Oh, I didn't do that perfectly. That, that's exactly where I got to. I, I had a checklist <laughs> of 10 things that I did. I, and bearing in mind, I was getting up at 4.30 a.m. So I had this massive checklist of things that I'd got done. And by 7 a.m., yeah. I'd not even started work at this point. By, <laughs> by 7 a.m., I'd done all these things. And I, honestly, I felt, I felt amazing. But I, it got to the point where it started overwhelming me. And I started going off the other side of it, where I started to feel anxious and overwhelmed by the ridiculous amount of things that I'd, I'd made myself do on, on a morning. And it, I, I still do a couple of them. I think the bit the biggest thing I try to do is well get enough sleep that's the biggest one for me I get 8 hours sleep a night and if if I go to bed late I get up late I've got that flexibility which is cool and then the other thing is is try and and this is something that I heard recently worded like this I didn't word this and I can't remember who said it but they said try and do something for yourself before you go and do something for somebody else so whether that's go for a walk whether that's create something whether that's write whatever that means to you and um, i found the the way of putting that really powerful and and that's probably the things that i've kept yeah i like that a lot you know what i was thinking man the people who recommend and who write these like morning routines people like tim ferris and no this against tim ferris i love tim ferris but they're like people who have their sh- they, they have their shit together already, and they're like recommending a path in hindsight. Yeah. So they've it may may I don't think they do this with bad intention, but I think they've forgotten what it's like to be a beginner. Yeah. So if I'm like a multi-millionaire, I have a staff, I have an assistant, I have my business taken care of. Uh, I already have the the health habits of working out and eating right. Then it's very easy for me to write a book and be like, "Oh, this is this is the perfect plan. Trust me, I have my shit together." But the thing is, when you're starting at the beginning and you've got, you know, and a lot of people who read these books are, are starting from scratch to get their life together. You only really need to like start with one thing, like whether that's building a new business or working out when you've never worked out before that's all you really need to see the light and then it, 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 you just slowly add to that 
But I think a lot of guys, what they do is they go, all right, I, only, I want to go from zero to 100. So obviously I need to live my life as if I were someone at 100 already. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, for, for me, I'm, I've got an obsessive personality. So when it comes to anything, whether it's improving or whether it's learning a new skill or, or whatever it is, I go all in on it 100%. And I, I did... I did the same with the self-improvement stuff and I went from being super unhealthy in every way that you could think of to to almost overnight trying to do everything, you know, r- running running a mile a day, lifting weights every day, reading books every day and, and just going all in. Um, I, and I think we're, we're all, we've all got a bit of a tendency to do that, haven't we? Because we want to see the changes quicker than they're, they're ever going to happen. It's, it's just human nature, really. Yeah, exactly. And I think it kind of like somewhat connected to the whole perfectionist mentality that's implanted in us from the time we're in school. You know, you have to be a straight A student. You have to freaking, I went to a very academic school. So it was, you gotta, you gotta get straight A's. You gotta play, you gotta do well in sports. You gotta do some sort of drama or music, some sort of cultural thing. Um, and it's become, it just becomes too much. Mm. Where, where did you kind of start waking up to? Where, where, where was the cutoff point for you? Because for me, it was probably six or seven years ago now where I woke up one day and I, right, I just said, right, I'm overweight and I need to change things. What, was, was there kind of a point in, in your life where you... So it's, oh, like everyone else, it started from a place... How do I explain this? I'll go a bit deeper. So ever since I was a kid, like primary school age, like a little kid, I I didn't know how to express it back then, but I always knew there was more to life than whatever normal is. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like I always felt, I always felt like this is just weird. Like you go to school, and then I go straight to uni, and then and then I like it. I know. I looked around. Everyone, everything just felt off to me, and I've always had that feeling since I was a kid that there was more, that there was something else. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't express it it because I was a kid, right? I I wasn't, you know, wasn't as smart as I am now. But I I knew there was something else. That's all. That's and I had, and I remember having this feeling from a very young age. And then, basically the whole self-improvement thing became really obvious. I started looking for solutions on Google, like everyone else around, I would say about, yeah, about a little over 10 years ago, I, I was just in a bad place, man. Like I hated my job. I was overweight and I didn't, I hadn't seen, I didn't understand the connection between physical and mental yet. I was very stressed out. I was very, I was suffering from anxiety. I was very angry, but I didn't know that a lot of that was connected with, with my body. Cause I was eating like shit and I was binge drinking every, I, I knew I was depressed. I mean, I, I don't say like, I'm not like saying like clinically depressed, but the word I used was depressed because, um, you know, it would come around Wednesday and I'd be already be thinking about getting drinks on Friday evening. 
Like that was what I that exci- that was the most exciting point of my life to go out and get smashed with my mates on a Friday night. Yeah. And one day I was just like I, I was extremely hung I was hungover pretty much every Saturday morning throughout my twenties. And I just woke up one day and was like, dude, I'm hungover like I was last week, but yet every week I keep doing this to myself. Why am I doing this to myself? And somehow I stumbled upon a blog called Bold and Determined. This this is like oh, a real oh, old school self-improvement blog. Have you ever read it? I, Ivan Throne, is it? No. Uh, so it's a guy called Victor Pride. Oh, Victor Pride, yeah. yeah. I get Victor wrote up. a blog called boldanddetermined.com. I remember it. I remember it. Fucking massive from like 2013 to 2015. Now we make fun of platitudes on, on money Twitter nowadays because money Twitter is quite advanced now. But back then, Victor was really the only guy on the planet that I know of before Cernovich came along that was talking about masculinity with a level of rawness that I had never heard of from in my life. Yeah, he was basically saying, you know, go get your fuck, go make your fucking money. Go lift those weights, go eat your steaks, go talk to chicks. Like he was just very, very raw and masculine. And it was a voice back then. It was very, very new. Like no one talked about that sort of stuff back then. Um, And honestly, that was, that, that was the beginning. And that led me down um, a path, let's just say of discovering other books, um, which then evolved to social media today so where did twitter start with all that then did you start twitter as you began your journey or did you start twitter later on so i've been on twitter for a few years i was the silent contributor back then i think i started my twitter account it doesn't really count i've had twitter since 2010 yeah but back then i wasn't engaging in any online conversation i was just using it to to you know, follow the news. I check in every now and then. You know, my favorite writers would would tweet out the links to the latest articles, that sort of stuff. But then I think it was uh, two thousand and what year is it? So last year, end of two thousand and nineteen, I saw Lawrence King was making some noise. This is how <laughs> this is crazy. So Lawrence only had like two hundred followers when I started when I got on Twitter. And he was just getting a lot of engagement and getting a lot of uh, traction. And he had a course back then called How to Make $100 a Day on Twitter. I think that's what it was called, something like that. Yeah. I sent him a DM and I was just like, mate, like, well, you know, what's the benefit of growing a Twitter account? I don't get it. Explain it to me. Uh, and he said, yeah, it's a good way to build an audience and then you can monetize it in like six, 12 months' time if that's what you want. I told him my story. And he said, that's a cool story, man. You should start, you know, start building a, uh, a brand around it. And the name, I used to have a blog way back when called waronweakness.com. Unfortunately, I lost the domain. Oh, man. But I just, I just thought it was a cool name. I don't know why I, I, put, I picked it. It came out of the blue. Uh, there's no special story about that. I know people always ask me, like, was there some sort of moment? No, it just sounded cool to me. 
and I've had that at for, for a while. Um, and that was it, man. I just started, you know, tweeting, sending tweets and then engaging with people and getting really hooked. I, I was addicted to Twitter for like six months. Very, very addicted. <laughs> that, that, that's the secret of everybody on Twitter, isn't it? You know, they, everybody was doing really well on Twitter. It, we, it, they all talk about having a, a really balanced life and things like that. And most of them are on Twitter, like 23 hours a day <laughs> with a Twitter addiction. We're just not admitting it. We've got a Twitter addiction, but we're not admitting it. <laughs> Bro, the funny, so it's not just the time thing. It's, it's a, it's the perception of time. So what I did, I, you know, in your phone, it tells you how much time you spent on an app per day. Yeah. So I went on once. This was like six months after I started building my account. And I had around 10, 12,000 followers at the time. And it was embarrassing. I think it was like accumulated of like four or five hours a day. Wow. That's and, impressive. But the thing is, in my mind, it felt like one hour. Yeah. That's the, that's the deceiving thing. And so it got to a point where I started using an app blocker. That's what I do now. I, I, block, I block it out for most of the day. Yeah. It's because you're jumping in and out of it all day, isn't it? You get, you might get a notification, then you jump in for five minutes, then you jump out, and then you might be stood, I don't know, waiting for something, and then you jump in again for five minutes, and then you jump out, and you, your day is completely ruled by jumping in and out of Twitter all day long. Yes. Um, so this morning, for example, I have like a morning setup where I have I give myself twenty minutes of Twitter, yeah. just to respond to comments. And I have so many followers now that it's impossible to respond to everyone within 20 minutes. So I hopped on this morning and I liked some tweets. I responded to some tweets, responded to a couple of DMs. And it felt like a minute and boom, app, app blocker just kicks in, kicks me out. And I'm like, there's 20 minutes. Just like, like just vanished like that. So I can totally understand how people are, are hooked on it. I'm, I've seen accounts, I swear to God, they spend eight hours a day on Twitter. They just have it open all day long. Well, I, I, re I remember seeing, oh God, how, how long ago is this now? Maybe eight months ago, maybe a year ago. You know when uh, Oliver Canton started coming up? You know when he yeah. started getting <laughs> lots of followers? And he kept post yeah. posting his Twitter statistics? And he was posting like 10,000 tweets a month or something? <laughs> was crazy yeah uh, but but to be real that that is if you want to grow quickly and you want to do it effectively you want to reply to everybody you want to be a well-rounded person on twitter that's what it takes man that you can't in you can't in the beginning if you want to grow it you can't be just posting a couple of tweets a day and then jumping off it doesn't work like that yeah i think people I think a lot of people who are new to Twitter have this thing where I'm just going to be in the vol and tweet out, yeah. you know, some philosophical gem once a day and it's going to get, you know, millions of views. A, you're not in the vol. <laughs> B, you're not in the vol. <laughs> um, but yeah, dude, you gotta, you gotta, um, you gotta engage. Uh, I heard a very interesting podcast um, between a guy who I follow called David Perel. Yeah, I, know I don't know if you know him. He, yeah. So David, he did a podcast with Anthony Pompliano, mm -hmm. the Pomp. Bitcoin guy. Pomp, yeah. 
So Pomps used he's I don't know what his exact background is, but he used to work at Facebook. Right. And on this podcast, he said, "There's no way you can guess the algorithm. The, the way you can get fast engagement is just to overwhelm the algorithm." Um, and by that he meant, as you said, just become a content producing machine. I mean, that guy's a machine. He tweets. He's got a podcast. He's got like a YouTube mini podcasting he does with his wife. He's got a newsletter. Um, he's basically just a one man media production. Yeah. And for, for most people, that's, that's tough to swallow because they think they, well, it comes back to this ease thing, uh, how easy things are. You look, you look at it and you think, oh, they look at war and weakness account, for example. And they see the followers, and I've seen other people grow ten thousand followers in, I don't know, two months or something like that. And they think, "All oh, right, it, it, it's going to be easy. I, I'm going to be able to just grow ten thousand followers in in two months." And the thing that most people don't realize is the thing that you just said: you are not Naval. You are not the person who grew ten thousand followers in two weeks. The majority of us are normal people where it just takes time and you, it takes a long time and you've got to be willing yeah. to put in that effort and the wrong effort for a long time and, and see it out of the other side. I found exactly the same thing. I started, I've been on Twitter since 2008 and it's only February this year where I realized I'd just been using Twitter for fun as well. I'd just been following news or whatever <clears throat> And it was only in February this year where I thought, right, I'm going to get off Twitter or I'm going to make it work for me. And yeah, for me, what that meant for me is that I looked around a little bit and researched a couple of things. And the thing that kept coming up was tweeting 10 times a day. And I'd seen Hype Fury at that point. So I signed up for a Hype Fury account. And then I started tweeting 10 times per day. That was my thing. So I just, and, and from February to now, I've tweeted at least 10 times a day. and. In the very beginning, I was doing the same. I was trying to write the most perfect tweet, the, the kind of like really insightful, really motivational type tweets. And I spend, <laughs> I spend so long trying to write these like perfect 10 tweets every day. And yeah. then every so often I'd write something stupid and suddenly that would take off or I'd get loads of engagement. And then yeah. slowly as I came along over, over those months up until right today, right now, I've slowly realized that there's a balance to make between personality and useful content and and shitposting, really. Just going on there and having a bit of a laugh and, and making friends. And there's that like really careful balance between all of those three things. And what's quite interesting about you on, with your War and Weakness account is that you used to be anonymous, didn't you? You was the snake Pliskin image. Yeah, and I there's there's days where I, I miss being snake. <laughs> and <laughs> that's one thing I really wanted to ask you about because there, there's always this big discussion about anon versus semi-anon versus you know not anon at all, where you're just yourself, which is like how I tweet. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because you've you've been switched over for a while now. What's kind of been the the pluses and the minuses to that? That's a great question. Um, 
Why did you do it, it in the first it, place, actually? It, it, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but when I had Kurt Russell's snake Pliskin face up, I was a bit more detached from the content, yeah. from what I was writing. So I try and be as authentic as possible, but when I had the snake face up, there was a part of me that felt like I was playing a character. Yeah. And what I realized was, and this is why I made the switch, after you write a certain amount of tweets, you can only fake it so much. Like, I don't know how people who run full Anon accounts and just tweet, like, rewritten motivational posts all day long. I don't know how they do it. They either use a bot or they're psychopathic. Like, I can't... They delete I can their only... old tweets. They delete their old tweets and just retweet, uh, just tweet them again. <laughs> there you go. Um, so once once I put my face up, I felt I was a bit more careful with what I wrote because I was like, well, now it's now it's really me, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and I felt what I was writing afterwards came out a bit more authentic. Might be a little psychological trick there, but um, but yeah, that was the reason why I did it because I didn't want to. I wanted to sort of like take off another layer and be a bit more authentic with the with with uh, with my audience. I I think it's interesting, and it felt like a relief. Yeah, I, it was I've, like a nice relief. Have Have you seen an uptick or a downtick in followers because of it? I know it's tough to say because they're different time periods and we've had the US election and stuff like uh, that. Um, there was a small uptick, but then afterwards, definitely a big time downtick. Yeah. But I think that's good because I think maybe I'm getting better quality followers. Yeah, I, I think so. That's how I justify it. <laughs> that's how I justify it anyway. Because I, I feel like a lot of the... Uh, if, if an account's growing like way too fast, that's usually a couple of things. The optimistic side is they, um, they're just, you know, the content is phenomenal. Um, or it could be they're in, engage, they're in multiple engagement groups. Um, or it could be their, their content is just very, very dumbed down because you have to remember Twitter, like any other social media, it's, it's, um, it's optimized for sort of like normal people, right? <laughs> and normal people like very, very simple, basic content. Yeah. Uh, and I think that hurts a lot of people's egos on money Twitter because money t- Twitter is like, it's like a very, very high IQ bubble within the Twitter sphere. And people hate it when you're, when, um, when your, your tweet is too, generic or it's too platitudey because it's 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 kind of like you're shitting on their intelligence at least that's the vibe i get yeah i i think you're right but i i think i have a theory about the anon versus being yourself thing yeah what what's that and i and i i think so two sides to it so the first side is when you're an anonymous account it's very well, I won't say very easy, but it's much easier to grow an anonymous account because people don't feel people don't feel obliged to follow 
or people don't feel obliged to stay because it's an anonymous account. They think it's content, and, and it is at the end of the day. It's all content. So it feels like they're following a news organization or a blog or whatever. They don't feel like mm. they've got to like the person because it isn't a person. It's a, it's, a, it's a content medium, really. It's a stream of content. So I think from that point of view, with an anonymous account, you you can get followers easier um because people don't feel obliged to follow they they just follow for the content but, mm. but then the downside of that is that if you want to start selling anything or anything big or anything high ticket it can be difficult to sell that because you've you've developed a brand almost it's a company really um there isn't a face to it. It's hard to sell high ticket stuff. I'm overgeneralizing here, but you know what I mean. But the the downsides of that is that because it's easier to get followers, I do think they're lower quality followers and they only see you as a, a disposable resource. Once your tweets get crap, they, they stop following you. Yes. but when I you, definitely agree with that last point. Yeah, but when it's you, they're following you because it's you. And the, the thing I always think about is Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans article. Have you read it? Mm. Yes, yeah. a few times, actually. Funny you brought it up because I was actually uh, going through my archive. I have an Instapaper account. Yeah. And one of the first articles that I archived was, was that, that particular article. But go on. It, it is fantastic. And it basically sums up the idea that we, the, the most opto optimistic and optimized way of building a, a following is to get a thousand true fans you don't need to take over the internet you don't need millions of followers you only need a thousand true fans that will buy everything you make follow everything you do and they basically love you that's the idea and i don't think you can really build true fans a thousand true fans when it's an anonymous account because people don't know who you are they don't know yeah they don't know your face for a start I see what you mean. I think for an anonymous account to grow the thousand true fans, as you said, is your, the way you write has to be, have a, a, a signature to it. Mm. So I can't, um, I can't think of any exa- examples. So this is not a good example, but there's an account that the, the guy who runs, um, tell your son this, yeah. tell your son this, tell your son so he had this. He went viral for a while because he finished his tweets with Tony Sanders, and that became a meme. So he became known for that. Yeah. If that's the only way as an anonymous account you can um, you can get that sort of fan base is when you have that that for lack of a better word USP right whether in your in your within your content. Yeah. Whereas if you're not non-anon, it's kind of like you're a face, you have a name. Uh, it's m- a lot easier to be unique and stand out. And I think the other thing for me as well, when when I started taking it seriously, a big a big point for me is I wanted to feel like I had skin in the game, that it was me, that mm-hmm. I was held to a to a level of something, you know. So I I couldn't I couldn't get away with just tweeting bullshit. I had to yeah. It's me, and people know me. And a, a bunch of my followers back then were my friends, and some of them still are. 
So they know me and they know who I am. So you, you, it holds you, or for me at least, it feels like it holds you to a higher level of what you need to say and what you need to do. Definitely. Yeah, there's definitely, a, yeah, there's, there's advantages to both. I actually do remember now, now that I've been thinking for a while, one of the other reasons why I decided to go out on at the beginning was because I thought it would be harder for that reason, for the reason I just pointed out, in that you have to, for you to succeed, in my opinion, you have to be a lot more creative. Because um, when you're a, a non-anon, there's a lot of little hacks can do. Like there's a lot of like lifestyle hacks, even whether that's real or not, you know, up to the person. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, it's a lot easier to flex, let's just say when you're, when you're a non-anon, if you choose to go down that path. Well, I think the other thing as well, I think you're right. It's harder in some ways because when you're a completely anonymous account, you're building a brand up from scratch. You, you mm-hmm. have to decide all of those things of the things you're going to tweet, the ways you're going to tweet them. And all of that stuff doesn't come naturally to some people, the whole branding side of it and the marketing stuff, especially if they've never done that kind of thing before. Yeah. I don't know if you follow many of them, but there's actually, there's a lot of anonymous accounts outside of money Twitter that are just hilarious <laughs> based on uh based on a particular theme. I, I follow um, a few. I follow one called people selling mirrors. <laughs> See, that just cracks me up, just the name. <laughs> and it's it's just photos of people trying to sell mirrors and trying to take photos of mirrors without them being in the mirror. And uh, I mean, guess it's got like hundreds of thousands of followers. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and every tweet gets gets viral, yeah. Oh, okay. And then... The- See, with those accounts, is that you you know, ex- like like you said, you know exactly what you're getting with that. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that's that's where anonymous accounts can appeal to people. They know exactly what they're getting. For a long time, uh, Naval's Twitter account, I thought I thought that was anonymous. I didn't know who Naval was. I thought it was just an account oh. called Naval. I didn't even know he was a person until <laughs> somebody actually said to me, you know, uh, they said uh, Naval Ravikant, and I was like, who's Naval? Oh, oh there we go. Oh. Now, now <laughs> I felt like the dumbest guy in the world that I never realized. But it's because of his style of tweeting to a point as well that it is very impersonal the way the way that he tweets and it's yes. always the same style of tweet and they're always they're always bangers as well every single tweet's amazing um, he doesn't show any of his personality on there it is just good tweet after good tweet yeah you can tell he really yeah I mean he's he's a he's a smart guy what can I say you know a great writer. Well, he said, I'm reading his um, book of Naval, the, the Almanac of Naval at the minute. Have you read it? I have not. So what exactly is that? Is that just someone commenting on or organizing all of Naval's thoughts into one place? So the structure of it is Naval's got a podcast and he tweets a lot. So it's, mm-hmm. it's all collected together. Apparently it took uh, Eric Jorgensen a couple of years to collect it all together. So it's all of these ideas wow. collected together. And as far as I can tell, a lot of it is transcribed from the podcasts and some of it is actually written by Naval as well as extra pieces. So it's all knitted knitted together like it's been, written, like it's been written by Naval 
So it doesn't feel like you're just reading a load of his tweets. It's actually a really good book, and it's all knitted together into chapters that make sense. Um, okay. It's a fantastic book, and it's really easy to read as well because of the nature of where the content came from. So because okay. it's come from tweets and short podcasts and stuff like that. But there's a, there's a section in that where he's he's talking about he's talking a little bit about his routines and, and and his definition of happiness and wealth and things like that and i think this is why he writes good tweets because he talks about just sitting and doing nothing and thinking so he spends an hour or two hours a day just i mean he's got the ability to do this now he's made his money but mm-hmm. his ability to sit and and just think and just sit there basically and think that's the thing that a lot of us don't have in our lives that we don't have the space in our lives if we've got a job and that and we've got family or or friends or whatever it is often it's hard for us to find that time to just sit and think and yeah this goes back to exactly what i was just talking about before right where yeah it's very easy for the vol (laughs) you know angel investor multi-millionaire to say oh yeah Meditate for an hour a day. I mean, if you're if you're like, I mean, I don't have any kids, and, and my life feels like I, I, I have enough to do my whole day to, to stay occupied, right? So I can't imagine someone who's got two, three kids, a mortgage to pay off, a nine to five job, plus commute, um, with all those responsibilities, and telling him to like go find an hour to meditate in a day. It's just, I mean, it's just, it's just unrealistic, right? Yeah, it, it is. But <laughs> I, I, the other thing about Naval as well, he's at the point now where if you look at his tweets, he doesn't tweet that much. I, he, no. He might tweet one, one tweet every couple of days or a couple of tweets if he gets inspired. He's at the point now, uh, this comes back to the thing about wanting to be a Naval. He's at the point now with, where has he got a million followers? Something like that. Um. He's at the point where he can tweet every couple of days, and that's enough. But if he yep. was to start the Naval account again tomorrow, his one tweet every couple of days and not interacting with anybody wouldn't be anywhere near enough to build a million-person following. He was the anomaly in, in the middle of it all somewhere. Yeah. And uh, I have no idea how long he's been on Twitter for. I suspect he's been on Twitter for a while. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure he's been on quite a long time, and... He he's always had that unique style uh, and hot, yeah. always tweeted like that. And and he was there tweeting platitudes, really, when other people weren't tweeting platitudes. And I know they're not quite platitudes, but they are the, the kind of generalistic advice that can be applied to anything where you work out how you want to apply them. Song lyrics, yeah. basically. Um, yeah. But for some reason, when he writes them, you listen and they seem more powerful than when other people write them. Yeah, man. He, I have to give him respect though, because it seems like this has been happening for like the last month or so where I've read a Naval tweet. And I'm like, you bastard. I thought that thought three days ago. But he beat me to it. But that just goes to show you how how switched on he is. Um, and I think that's that's the sign of 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 someone who's very, very intelligent when you can, because when I read good books, when I read great books, it's always stuff that, that 
I've felt, but I haven't been able to convey in words yeah. until I read that particular passage or, or whatever. I think what, what it shows as well with, with that thing on Twitter, I heard someone say this before as well, that when you use Twitter, it is uh, basically a mind a mind machine. And if you follow the wrong people, you are getting your mind altered by the wrong people. And when you read and consume their tweets, a couple of days later, you find you're writing tweets the same way as that they were writing tweets about the same kind yep. of stuff. And you see it a lot when a, a tweet a tweet gets quite popular, you might write a tweet and then a load of other people write a tweet about the same topic. Not the same tweet, but around the same topic because they've read it and they've seen it in the timeline over and over and over. And you kind of go yep. around in this big loop of idea, idea, uh, an idea orgy, really, on, on Twitter where you say the same things. The other thing I find fascinating about Twitter is, um, are you familiar with, the um mimeticism the rene girard mimetic theory uh I, I know what they are but i'm not familiar with the theory so rene girard was a how should we call him writer philosopher teacher he's 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 dead now he's um but he came up with this with the theory of mimeticism which is that we don't have any true desires we desire what someone else desires and that's all you have to understand i'm not going to go into it because it's quite deep but basically like you know you and i mates i don't really give a shit about cars but we're in a group of mates and everyone else wants a car and now i want the same car because you two you all won't shut up about the fucking car <laughs> so now i automatically want the car because i see that you want the car yeah so and I think this is interesting because I've seen this play out on Twitter where you, let's say your, your goal is to grow an account to fucking 10,000 followers and, and your goal is to monetize your Twitter account. Well, what's going to happen is you, after a few months of spending time on Twitter, you start seeing other accounts do it successfully and now you want what they have. That's what's causing all these, you know, you see a lot of these people on Twitter complaining about Twitter growth guides. That's exactly what's happening. One person had success with it. And then another account had success with it. And now all these new accounts come up and they all want to have success and the same leverage and the same thing. And they all just end up copying each other. Um, and that's just a, a little example of this mimetic theory playing out. Um, if you want to learn more about it, follow my, my boy, uh, Benjamin George. Do you follow Benjamin? I do, yeah. Spanish guy. Uh, so sp he writes a lot about mimetic, mimetic theory, and I haven't spoken to him directly about this, but I'm sure he, he would agree with me. He, but um, He's a Spanish guy but, with a British accent. Yeah, I thought he was English for ages, and then I saw he had the Spanish flag in his name, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so I went on his website, and I figured out the story. Yeah, it's it's kind of the the same way. I went through this a little bit with my girlfriend. I've been going out with my girlfriend for fifteen years. We've been together a long time, and a couple of years back, maybe five or six years back, she started to to want to get married really bad, and and I, and I and I and I said at that point, we either get married or we go to Disney World, and we went to Disney World, and and that put the conversation off for a year. 
And then after that, I kind of t- I spoke to her about it again. And I said, look, you know, I, I'm not avoiding getting married at all. It's just a big expense, all this kind of thing. We've been together a really long time. I don't personally think it makes a difference. But if you really want to get married, that's cool. We'll get married. And we got into this conversation about it. And basically, it all comes down to the fact that all her friends are getting married. Everybody around mm-hmm. her is getting married. And she's seeing mm-hmm. these posts on Facebook all the time. Yep. And I'm like, that's all that's happening here. Let's leave it a little bit and see if you you know still want to get married in a year's time or whatever when all these posts have disappeared. And yeah. Let, let's deal with it then. But it's exactly the same thing. It's most of our lives are dictated dictated by that. And how how do you separate the things that you actually truly want versus the things that you think you want, even though it's just because your friends have got it? That's really hard. That. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the most painful thing is you think you want that thing because based on mimetic desire, then you get it and you're happy for like one day. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times this has happened to me. This has happened to me so much, so many times. I mean, the biggest, uh, the biggest example of that in my personal life was when I got my, my first big corporate role. Like I was very, very career driven in university my dream was to basically get a job at like Goldman Sachs and become like the sexy ass banker <laughs> like in like like the guy in um in American Psycho yeah <laughs> I want to be like that I want suits I wanted the uh the you know the money the cars etc and once I got in I, I got a job in like a very very big firm and within like a couple of months, I was like, this is not, or oh, it's kept up to be like, this is, this is shit. You know, I'm not happy. I'm not any happier than I was two years ago. And then, and it's painful because in that example, I worked really hard in uni to get there. Well, at, at least in my mind, I worked really hard, you know, and I invested a lot of, of, of um, you know, three, five years of my life into that. And then when he, when I got there, I was like, this is, not making me happy. So what did you do? I mean, that's sorry. What did you do? Well, I, I immediately formed a plan to quit within 12 months and that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Um, but it took me, I mean, it's just, I feel bad because my parents are quite traditional and they're, you know, they're Asian. So Asians like Asian parents, this is not controversial at all, but they want their kids to, work in the most prestigious firms and to have the most prestigious jobs. Got to be a doctor or a lawyer or um, an accountant or whatever. A doctor, a lawyer, accountant, engineer, anything in the stems, really. Um, but I, it's hard for me to explain my mom because she came from, like, abject poverty. <laughs> so to her, job security is, is, a, is a luxury, yeah. you know? But to me, um, it's like I'm not... I'm one of those guys, I, I hate being told what to do. I really don't like it. And in corporate, you basically have to pretend to be someone you're not in order to sort of like progress up the the chain of the command, up the up the hierarchy. You've got to be an anonymous Twitter account all the time, man, for eight hours yeah, a day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it drives me in. It's just like, uh, 
yeah, the moment when I decided to quit was when I realized this is no different from high school. This is literally high school with a paycheck. Yeah. I think I think that secure the secure job thing's quite interesting because I, I have this conversation with some friends because I've got some friends who are who are in corporate jobs and I run my own agency, so I'm self employed effectively. I've not I've got no job security really. If everything yeah. went wrong, I'd be out of a job tomorrow. But they all think that they're safer somehow because they work for somebody. They think they're safer. And I hope to a lot of those people that this year with COVID has made them realize that they aren't any safer. In fact, if anything, because they're not in control of their destiny, they're not safe at all. The thing I always explain to them, look, if, if I'm going to lose my job and I make my own job, if I'm going to lose my job, I know I'm going to lose my job. 12 months in advance you don't know you're going to lose your job until the very last second because they won't tell you they'll keep you working right until the very last second and then they'll tell yeah. you in one week to go we're getting rid of you we can't afford you where's the security in that yeah man i um so i worked in uh so i, I worked in bankruptcy okay corporate bankruptcy that was my specialty back in the day but we were in the same department as the uh, the transactions guys, the M&A guys. And I was working there in the midst of the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. Yeah. And so I watched half of my colleagues lose their jobs within like, within like a week. I think everyone was just getting, getting uh, made redundant because their, their jobs were just completely unnecessary. There was no transactions being made in that climate. Um, and, it's and these are people who were like, who pride themselves on being loyal to the firm and being a team player. Mm. And then they get sacked, but the, the bosses still get their bonuses. Um, yeah. You know? Well, I think the, the biggest thing that people like that realize is, especially this year, this kind of year where you, you think that the, the security is in, just joining another firm you think you know that they'll take the risk and they'll employ me but in a year like this where you lose your job there might be no industry left there might not be any other company you could go work for because nobody's hiring right now because of the crazy shit we're living through so you yeah you quickly realize that everything you've kind of invested into this company mindset of working for somebody else where you think it's safer it just isn't, and and the safest thing to do is build the skills of a self-starter, of an entrepreneur, where you can just turn turn your hand to an opportunity and have all the skills around you to be able to start that and make money from it. More importantly, yeah, exactly. I think that's a you know that's a that's a scary thing for most people, right? And and. I, I jump back and forth. Sometimes I, I'm very, very empathetic to, to people who have jobs. And sometimes I'm like, man, you need to like wake up to the reality of, of what it is. I'm not against having jobs. No, uh, I think jobs, I think the job's great. I just, what I'm against is people not knowing the reality of what that entails. Yeah. I, I'm not against it at all. And the, the conversations I have with friends are usually against me they think i'm risking things that you know I, i've i've run a design agency for 10 years there's really no risk left 
We, we, yeah, aren't, yeah, yeah. we aren't gonna go bust tomorrow but i still get it now even from my parents where they they see me oh, and they go yeah so how's business you know are, are you making money i don't <laughs> mom I, i've been doing this for 10 years i yeah I, i'm not I, i'm okay <laughs> you don't need to still be asking me yeah how's business my mom asks me like every couple of weeks like it's it's sales are still good like you still got clients as if like i had like a lucky streak yeah you know what i mean um but i can i mean i can understand from that generation there must be you know especially for for someone like you because you do you work in design you can effectively work from home as long as you have a computer yeah and also for your feet it must be weird for your parents to be like all Craig does is like fucking sit around his pajamas and play on the computer all day. How is he paying his bills? Yeah. That's probably what they're seeing. It is. It is. It's exactly what it is. And I, <laughs> I, I think, and they see, they see me doing potentially stupid shit online and not seeing the connection with the dots of how it all links together. And yeah. the, the biggest thing that they don't understand and most of my friends don't understand either is I, I know I'm, I'm sat at home and I'm getting Gumroad notifications for things that I've made, and I'm and I'm making money while I'm having a beer with them, and they're like, I do not get this at all, and you feel like some kind of fucking wizard. Uh, <laughs> you've got this secret power to to bring money out of the air whilst you sat having a beer, and they just do just do not understand it at all. Yeah, uh, I've tried to so like broach the topic with a few friends of mine because I have a friend here who um. He's, he's a teacher and I've been trying to like get him to sort of like to start, to start instead of, cause he teaches at a university. Yeah. And I said, you know, you're, you're a very talented teacher. You could, if you started like a social media account, YouTube channel and you start promoting yourself, you could get private students who pay you in us dollars and they will pay you a fuck ton more yeah. without having to go through. Cause he's always complaining about his boss. Like you don't have to have a boss, you know, you can set up this landing page. I showed him like this template I have on card I built and he was just like, man, I don't want to scam anyone. Yeah. And I could just tell from the way he answered me that he's not ready. Yeah. Because I, everything I bring up, he's going to, he's going to argue with me. I, so it's I, like, I, well, I had that mindset as well uh, until February this year. I, I felt exactly the same, that it was a scam and I I can't make a thing and sell it online. Bearing in mind, I, I run a design agency and we make e-commerce websites for people who sell things online. I'm very aware of the whole the whole thing and I understand the whole thing very, very well. But when it came to me, I felt like I was scamming people if I sold anything. And it was only yeah. it was only coronavirus that made me really sit up and take notice where I were like oh. because um I didn't know when it all hit and we went into hard lockdown in the UK, I was like, Am I gonna have a business next week? I didn't know that and nobody else knew that because everything just shut down so quickly. All businesses shut down. You couldn't get hold of anybody. We went into crisis mode. 
And I, I, I really had a period of reflection where I thought, if I lose Genius Division tomorrow, I've got nothing. I, I could go work as a designer for somebody else pretty quickly, but I'm not earning anything from things I've built already or already made. And I'm not turning any of these skills to anything that I could turn them to. And that was the point right there and then where I thought, I need to try, at least just try and make something online. And I'd already had a book that I'd written a couple of years ago that wasn't even about design. It's like self-improvement, kind of my journey through self-improvement. And I had the book and I just stuck it on Gumroad. And I, I joined around the same time, joined the Visualize Value community. And there was a ton of people in there all doing the same thing. And I thought, fuck it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to stick it online and sell it. And I still felt like a fraud for a long time after that, that I'm selling, I'm selling this thing and I feel fake for selling it because I don't see any value in it. And I feel like a fraud and I feel like a scam. And then over time, when you've done it for a while, I think you start to get over it. And, but it does take a long time, especially for me as well, being from the UK and from the area that I'm from, a small town with that small town mentality and and the thing people in the UK don't promote themselves, it's hard to get over that. That's the biggest step to get over. Yeah, the whole self-promotion thing. um, Well, if you think about it, it's just not, it's just not like normal, right? (laughs) Like if if, if you have like a somewhat normal, you know, upbringing, it's, I, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I don't really know. I know one guy. I know one guy from school who was like really hardcore, just a natural salesman. Yeah. But apart from him, it was sort of like shunned upon to sell and to especially to sell yourself. Yeah. And so that means that you have to break out of your friends that you've got around you. And that, that, yeah. t- that, that takes guts, man. That, that takes a lot of guts to, I'm still friends with everybody, but it takes guts to step out in front of them and say, look, I'm doing this thing. And, I, and they're all saying, yeah, you're a fucking scam. What are you doing? This is ridiculous. And, all, and it takes, it takes, it takes, you know, courage to do that, which sounds ridiculous. You're only selling a PDF on Gumroad. There's no courage involved <laughs> whatsoever. You're not going to war or anything. But... <laughs> It takes it takes a lot of courage to step out from the normal relationships you have in your life to do it. Yeah, I think any sort of, any type of sales, right? Whether it's um, selling a PDF on Gumroad or I don't know, opening up a juice bar in the corner and selling juice, like you t- you send a, you you take, especially if you have no experience with sales, you you t- you take it. Like people take it personally, right? Yeah. They see the no to the product as a no to them. Um, which is weird. I don't know why that is, but um but people do feel that way. Yeah, it's it's the same in, in design. I've been a designer for fifteen years and when you first become a designer and you get your first client and they don't like what you've done, you feel like they've just shit on your face. But it's not Yeah. It's not you. It's just, you know, it's the work. Yeah. And especially when there's a financial transaction involved because no one 
no one likes likes to feel like a scammer, you know, especially if you're getting paid. Yeah, that's the hardest part. So you went from corporate to being a writer. How, how has that transition been? Has that been freeing? Has that? Do you finally feel like you've found yourself? Is this it, where you're at now? Um, I'm grateful every day that I don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. I think that's the best thing. And I think you might have a similar thing where when you work for yourself, um, I don't know, it's equally stressful as it is free because mm. on one hand, you've got no one to, you, you've got no one to uh, support you, right? That's the thing about corporate. Like, even when you're in, even if, if it's a false sense of security, you have like your colleagues to like fall back on sort of like share the stress. Whereas when you're on your own, you're freelancing like me, um, there, there's a small part of you and, and it slowly dissipates as you do it for longer. There's always a small part of you like, Oh, is the, is the dream over? Because, because it is, it does, there are days where I, I look at my old corporate friends and I look at my lifestyle uh, and I feel I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for, for being able to do what I do that it just doesn't feel real. I, I found the same when we started. I went from doing design for other people to starting up for myself for free freelancing. Basically we, I started, I started an agency with somebody else. There was two of us from the very beginning and the leap right there was tough because I'd always been employed by other people and we got we had two thousand pounds. I tell this story all the time. We had two thousand pounds, and we said, "Right, is this it? Are we going to quit?" And we we didn't have any responsibilities. I was twenty one, um, business part was twenty three or twenty four or something. We had no responsibilities. We lived at home, but it was still a big decision, and we did it. And then when we did it, we were like, "Well, if we run out of money, we'll just go get another job." It's as easy as that, you know, every month, and this is the way that I framed it for myself and I still frame it this way now, every month that you can successfully work for yourself is like 10 months of experience of working for somebody else. So I like that. By the time you've done it for five years, you've actually got 10 years experience and not just in the job, not just in the skill, which you're doing every day anyway, but in the client management, in the accounts, in the running everything yourself, you build up all these extra skills that you just don't build as a as an employee. And then it becomes yeah. the, it becomes the point where you've been doing it for so long, like I've been doing it for ten years. If I lost my job tomorrow, I could just walk into an agency and say, "Look, I've run my agency for ten years. Do you want all this experience?" It'd be so easy. So you you still have the fear of, of not having money because obviously you don't want to get to that position. But it becomes like a, a tipping point where you're earning way more experience than you ever would in just a corporate job. Yeah, and it's also all the soft skills associated with that, I yeah. think. Um, I mean, to do what you and your friend did, right, at age 21 to decide to go on your own, that takes some a lot of balls, man. And 
it might not seem like a big deal to you because you've been doing it for 10 years, but, but uh, like most people would not even think about that. I remember when I was in uni and I was applying for my first jobs and I wasn't getting the calls back. I thought my life was over, man. Like that's how, that's how weak I felt. That's how reliant I was on the job. And all my friends felt the same way. We're like, man, if we don't get a job offer within the first six months of leaving uni, we're fucked. Like, we're like, this is over. Because we had no experience. We had, you know, we were fresh out of uni. And so that that's where your mindset is. Like, if you don't have, if you can't get a job, then you're completely fucked. Yeah. Um, and that's what's good about entrepreneurship. Like, you, you, you prime yourself to think, not of your resume but of your skill sets yeah and and you build up this this crazy skill set that you i mean i'm now at the point where i couldn't even i couldn't even put my skills into one bucket because on on an average day i might be having a client meeting then i'm doing some design and then i'm sorting something else out and then i'm doing this and doing that and then i might be doing some social media over here and then i might be doing this other crisis thing for a client and then we might be talking about payment gateways with another client and you get this like crazy experience in so many different pots of things where you just become yeah. this crazy like polymath thing that you can't explain to anybody that's so 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 powerful that when you're when you're working for somebody else they employ you on on day one to be x and then on yes. and then on day ten thousand, you are still X. You're an experienced X, but you're still X and and not Y. Whereas when you work for yourself, you are the full full range of the alphabet by the time you get there. Yeah, I was um so I a good story to tell you. So I have a friend who um this is why I say oh, not all the jobs are bad. I had this friend, I think it was either um well, she's not really a friend, just the girl I met. She, it was either her, I think it was her parents, actually. Yeah, I think it was her parents. Doesn't matter. Anyway, so the parents had, like, professional jobs. I think they were lawyers or something like that. Yeah. And they always had this dream of starting their own bakery. So they thought about all the upsides of, of going off on their own. They thought, oh, we're going to be our own business owners. We're going to be able to sell cakes. We'll be, be friends with our, with our customers. But they didn't think about the reality of what it means to run a business. Because what, what, here's what their whatever 10 hour day of working as a lawyer turned into like a 14, 16 hour day of running a bakery. Yeah. Because why? They had to hire employees, they have to pay the taxes, they have to deal with the plumber to fix whatever at the bakery, they have to bake the cakes, they have to do all this shit that people don't think about when you're working on your own, like doing your own taxes, you know, finding contractors to fix specific problems, hiring people, firing people. Yeah. These are all like the non-sexy aspects of entrepreneurship that people don't really talk about, but that's like 70% of your day. Oh, if you're lucky, I always, I always tell anybody a designer that like, what if, I used to teach I used to teach on a web design course once a year for a couple of weeks and they all used to want to be freelance straight away and I used to say you know what what do you want to do oh, I want to be freelance I want to be a freelance designer so don't be a freelance designer you'll do no design and you'll hate it 
You need to go work for someone. Learn your skills on somebody else's time because you'll. it takes a particular kind of person to be a successful freelancer. And if you want to do the skill and get very, very, very good at it, don't go do it for yourself because you'll be spending 50 to 60% of your time doing the other things. And then you'll still have to do the skill. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this couple I talked about, according to the, to the daughter or whatever, or the sister or whoever it was, um, they just be, like, they end up becoming more miserable than they were when they were in corporate. Yeah. Because they realized that, you know, running a mom and pop shop, like a brick and mortar business, like a local neighborhood business, that's your life. I know because I have a few mates who own bars in Australia and like that's, they, they work 70, 80, up to 100 hours a week because yeah. when they're not running the bar, they're doing with all the bullshit in the back end. You know what I mean? Like yeah. finding new suppliers, refurbishing the bar, whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And You know, we, like I said, we look after some e-commerce websites and that means that one of them could ring me right now. <laughs> If the website goes down, and yeah. I'm like I, I, I've got to try and deal with that somehow. The, the book stops with me, and yeah, if you if you don't want that level of experience, that level of responsibility, then that that's when it's cool to go work for someone else, and you've still got plenty of time. You could build a skill for ten years, you know, go from twenty years old to thirty years old and build a skill on somebody else's time, and then go freelance. Yeah, I think the word you said is the most important, which is responsibility. Like, so, you know, with, uh, well, what's that thing that Jocko says, discipline equals freedom? Yeah. You know, I really like that because it's true. Um, the more freedom you have, the more responsibility you have. Yeah. Um, the analogy I like to use always is with, uh, is with healthcare. You know, I have the freedom that, I don't have to worry about my health, but at the same time, I, I take on the responsibility of working out every day, you know, not eating the or the junk that I would love to eat. Not, you know, I watched, I watched the show last night. I wanted, there was nothing I wanted more than a bag of salt and vinegar, salt and vinegar crisps <laughs> go along with the show. But, I can't do it, right? Because <laughs> I'm not I'm not 20 years old anymore. Yeah. Um, and so, but that gives me the freedom of of, of longevity and and health. Yeah. And it's the same thing with business. Like you know, you, I I don't want I want the freedom to be able to be myself and not have to fucking you know kiss someone's ass because he's higher up the hierarchy than I am. Well, then I have to you know, do that hour extra of work that I wouldn't have to do if I had to, if I worked for someone else. I'm going to leave it on that point. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to say anything more insightful than that. We've been going, <laughs> we've been going for an hour and 10. Wow. That was awesome, man. Yeah. Everything that I wanted. Yeah. Um, have you got any final things you want to say? Anything to plug? Um, not really. Just uh, everyone that's listening out there, stay strong. It's first of December today. Um, 
which means that people are starting to slack off. They're starting to feel that New Year energy. I know what I know what that feels like, where you reflect on the year and think about how crap it is, and then oh, you know, in in thirty days' time, you're going to be a changed man. You're not going to be a changed man in thirty days' time. Um, you know, start fucking changing yourself today. Love it. 